Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the final episode of Chatter in the Skull. But again, don't expect things to change very much. All that is changing is the title. In fact, I'm not even going to reset the episode counter. I'm just going to go back and change the titles of all the episodes to the new show name. And eventually, one day, probably, hopefully, I will get around to changing the thumbnails to reflect the new logo as well. But with that being said, unfortunately, it's going to be a shorter episode today. Once again, Nurgle has decided to bless my household with his various gifts. Unfortunately, I have not received a gift yet, but my wife has, and that leaves me in the position of being the sole caretaker right now. So obviously, in respect to her, going to keep things on the shorter side today. So we're going to jump right into today's topic, and today I want to talk about the emerging 2024 Republican primary. Obviously, last week we had Ron DeSantis jump in with his hilariously botched Twitter spaces. And with Ron DeSantis now officially in the race, we actually have the two major candidates now settled, running for the nomination, and obviously going to duke it out with one another to secure the win. So what I find particularly interesting about this emerging battle on the right wing is where the fault lines are being drawn. And that's one of the cool things I think about any inter-party primary processes is that you see where fault lines are in individual philosophies and the way people think and how those fault lines emerge into different forms of thoughts and policies and that kind of stuff. As a political wonk, that's all very cool and interesting to me. So anyway, with that out of the way, now that we have the candidates out there attacking each other, got a little bit of meat we can delve into. So let us see where the emerging fault lines are coming into when it comes to this particular Republican primary. So one of the things leading up to Ron DeSantis's eventual announcement was Donald Trump kind of laying on a few salvos before we got there. We talked about military tactics a lot in the last episode. So we had Donald Trump doing some preemptive artillery strikes against Ron DeSantis before he jumps into the actual ring and starts to fight for the nomination so if you haven't seen if you just to give guys some context right sometimes i get a little bit ahead of myself because like i am a political junkie i follow a lot of this crap and sometimes people not, might not know what i'm what i'm talking about but one of the preemptive ads that donald trump hit DeSantis before he jumped into the ring was this, this <laughs> where they basically just had, and it was like a, a, a Trump-affiliated... Oh my God, this is going to look off. <laughs> anyway, they, they the, anyway, they had this ad where it's just like pictures of like people putting their fingers into pudding cups. And apparently this comes from an instance where Ron DeSantis just dug into a pudding cup where he just went and slurped it up with his bare hands. But anyway, the actual message of the ad, not just the image of the pudding fingers, was that Ron DeSantis is trying to put his fingers, putting his fingers into social security. And this line of attack to me is just really fascinating as a political observer and seeing where these, again, these fault lines are drawing in the Republican Party. Because defending social security is generally speaking considered a more left-wing policy. It's considered to be a more left-wing policy proposition. And one of the things that Ron DeSantis already is trying to do, and I see that he will probably try and do moving into the primaries, actually position himself to the right of Donald Trump on various issues. 
And one of them will probably be economic entitlements. If he hasn't really delved into a plan about this yet, but initially the right-wing fault lines DeSantis is trying to hit Trump over are his response on the COVID pandemic. He was basically saying that he was too beholden to Dr. Fauci and blah, 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 blah. As far as I'm concerned, this is ancient news that nobody cares about anymore. I could be wrong, but I think most of, not just in North America, but I think most of the world is beyond COVID at this point. And I think by and large, people aren't interested in relitigating old issues from the pandemic. Again, I could be wrong, but this is just my political reading of the situation, not just here in Canada, but also in the United States and abroad. And another angle DeSantis is opening up right now is on a crime. He's trying to hit Donald Trump on crime, saying that he let out too many prisoners via the First Step Act and that he's way tougher on crime in Florida and so on and so forth. And I wouldn't be surprised as if as the primary heats up, we do actually get something from Ron DeSantis where he says that I want to tackle entitlements in some way, shape, or form. And that includes Social Security. Because one of the Republican talking points, if you've had your ear to the ground for the last 20 years, one of the things that they bring up is that Social Security and these old age entitlements are going to be bankrupt. It's always like 10 years in the future. 10 years ago, it was 10 years in the future. Now it's 10 years in the future. Bankruptcy is coming for all of these entitlements. So we have to reform them one way or another, because if we don't, the sky will fall type of thinking. So I wouldn't be surprised if DeSantis tries to open up an actual attack or argument on that front, because he is influenced very clearly by a type of right-wing philosophy that is predominant among the, the intellectual academic class of the conservative thinkers. And yes, there are conservative academics. They are a small and weird bunch, but they have a major impact in driving conservative thought. A lot of their ideas have permeated very deep into conservative thinking throughout the past 30, 40 years, even longer than that. And particularly among college-educated conservatives, conservatives who see themselves as academic and intellectuals, these types of arguments are very much so favored among them. And they represent a fault line within right-wing thinking that unless you're in tune with the way they think, you might not see. And usually it doesn't come to the forefront except for times when they're fighting each other like this. Have you guys checked out my new custom-made black can of Sprite? What am I talking about exactly? Well, there's a very powerful and influential school of thought that permeates itself into conservative thinking. And in some extreme cases, this school of thought manifests itself in very, like, what you would consider anarcho-capitalist type of thinking. Doesn't always get to that point. But that being said, it is very much so heavily associated with a lot of the kind of trickle-down Reaganomics that we see today. But in some cases, this type of economic thinking is even further advanced and is emblematic of an even further extreme version of neoliberalism. What am I talking about? What I'm talking about right now, what I'm talking about here is, of course, the Chicago School of Economics. So I will give the Chicago School of Economics credit. It has evolved away from a lot of the work that its progenitor, Milton Friedman, actually put forward. That being said, though, there are a lot of conservatives who are very wedded to Milton Friedman's ideas and sort of the, the old school 
the old school version of what the Chicago School of Economics looks like. And particularly if you are like in that Gen X conservative area, you are very likely to be wedded to this guy because he became popular. His economic theories became popular usually in that time when they were going to school and going to university and they just happened to go in at the right time and really absorb a lot of these kind of economic theories. And one guy who I think is of that school is Ron DeSantis. And another guy who I would say is very much of this school and is probably the biggest proponent of Milton Friedman economic philosophies would be Ben Shapiro these days. A little bit younger, probably his economic theories were really popular after he was born, or excuse me, before he was born. That being said, he probably picked it up during his studies at university and it really spoke to him and then he's held on to it ever since. Who, do, who is Milton Friedman and what exactly is his economic prescription? Now, let me move myself over here so we can actually see some of his some of his stats, if you will. Unfortunately, there's not really a spot where I can completely keep everything uncovered. So let's jump in here. I'll just read you the intro here from Wikipedia so I will give you as little of my own bias as possible. I think it would be clear that this type of economics is not something I am a fan of or would advocate for. That being said, I would highly recommend you, especially if you're on the left, to familiarize yourself with Milton Friedman and his economic policies because they are the progenitors of a lot of right-wing economic theory to this day. Milton Friedman was an American economist and statistician who received the 1976 Nobel Peace, excuse, not Nobel Peace Prize, Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences for his research on consumption analysis, monetary history and theory, and the complexity of the stabilization policy. With George Stigler and others, Friedman was among the intellectual leaders of the Chicago School of Economics, a neoclassical school of economic thought associated with the work of the faculty at the University of Chicago, which rejected Keynesianism in favor of monetarism until the mid-1970s, when it turned into a new classical macroeconomics based heavily on the concept of rational expectations. Friedman's challenges to what he now calls the naive Keynesian theory began with his interpretation of consumption, which tracks how consumers spend. He introduced a theory which would later become part of the mainstream and among the first to propagate the theory of consumption smoothing. During the 1960s, he became the main advocate opposing Keynesianism government policies and described his approach along with mainstream economics as using Keynesian language and apparatus, yet rejecting its initial conclusions. He theorized there existed a natural rate of unemployment and argued that unemployment below this rate would cause inflation to accelerate. He argued that the Phillips curve was in the long run vertical natural state and predicted that it would become known as stagflation. Freeman promoted a macroeconomic viewpoint known as monetarism. He argued a small, steady expansion of the money supply was the preferred policy as compared to a rapid and unexpected changes. His idea concerning monetary policy, taxation, privatization, derealization influenced many government policies, particularly during the 1980s, during the Reaganite era, and his monetary theory influenced the Federal Reserve's monetary policy response to the global financial crisis of 2007-2008. So his ghost looms large over economic theory, particularly in the United States. So after retiring from the University of Chicago in 1977, he was an advisor to Republican President Ronald Reagan, 
and conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. His political philosophy extolled the virtues of free market economic system with minimal government intervention in social matters. He once stated that his role in eliminating conscription in the United States was his proudest achievement. Oh, that's interesting. I should look into that. I'm not sure. I can't speak to that at all. Though, if that is, I would say that eliminating conscription in the United States would be a particularly good achievement. I definitely couldn't take that away from him. In any case, let's continue. In his 1962 book, Capitalism and Freedom, Freeman advocated policies such as volunteer military, free floating exchange rates and medical licenses and a negative income tax school vouchers, which is very scary in my opinion, and his opposition to war on drugs and support for drug liberalization policies. His support for school choice led him to found the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, which was re later named Ed Choice. Freeman's works cover a wide range of economic topics and policy issues. His books and essays have had global influence, including in former communist states. A 2010 survey of economics commissioned by the economic, I don't know what that is, what the AJW is, rated Freeman as the second most popular economist of the 20th century, followed only by his rival, Keynes, upon his death. The Economist described him as the most influential economist of the second half of the 20th century and possibly all of it. So let's move into some of his very specific policy prescriptions which matter for us. One of which we can see right here that I wanted to bring up for you guys. So here we go. In 1962, Friedman criticized Social Security in his book Capitalism and Freedom, arguing that it created a welfare dependency. However, he does, and it mentions it here, just contradicted himself a little bit. In the penultimate chapter of the same book, Friedman argued that capitalism had greatly reduced the extent of poverty in absolute terms. Poverty is a relative matter, and even in the wealthy Western countries, there are clearly many people living under conditions that the rest of us would label as poverty. Friedman also noted that while private charity could be one recourse for alleviating poverty, he cited the 19th century British and United States example as exemplary periods of extensive private charity. I feel like this particular little blurb here is not very well written, not very clear. And if it were up to me, I would write it a little bit better. So basically what they're saying here is that, yes, he did criticize Social Security. However, he notes that there needs to be something. He argues through the capitalist lens that poverty isn't in absolute terms in the sense that what would what an impoverished person here in North America is very different from what an impoverished person in sub-Saharan Africa looks like in comparison to one another. And you would even say that potentially a, a middle-class person, relatively speaking, in one of these sub-Saharan African countries would not even live up to someone who lives in poverty in a Western, quote-unquote, system. And essentially, he's arguing that social programs are a factor that help keep things from devolving into absolute terms. Because so long as there is some sort of social safety net, poverty can never devolve into that absolute level of complete and total dissolution and destitution. But overall, he spends a whole lot more time criticizing things like social security than arguing for their benefit. Generally speaking, social programs, welfare programs are not viewed particularly highly by freedmen. One such program, while he does not exactly want the elimination of public schools completely destroyed, right here he says, Friedman proposed supplementing publicly operated schools with privately run but publicly funded schools through a system of school vouchers. So basically this is, you know, that there are now private schools 
not necessarily funded directly by the government. What happens is that you put your child in a school and that you will receive a voucher through the government, which will eliminate the costs or reduce the costs. It's <laughs> it depends on the system, right? So it's not exactly clear if these vouchers would cover the whole cost or just some of the costs. I think it's definitely left up to whatever parent would decide, essentially, if they want to put their kid in like a better school, they would take the voucher and then just pay the difference. If a parent didn't want to pay, they would just take the voucher and go to like a lesser school type of thing. Here's the thing about school vouchers. Well, I personally don't think that they would work over here in North America and for our system. They have actually worked in some other countries. For example, Sweden kind of has a school voucher system in the sense that they have a competing public school system and a private school system. But that being said, they're like, people think when they hear this, it's like some kind of like, there's no oversight to these private school systems in Sweden. They're extremely, extremely tightly regulated. Their curriculum is tightly regulated. Their staffing is tightly regulated. You can't, for example, you can't open up any type of religious school public or private in Sweden. So even if you want to open up a private school, it still has to be completely secular in the country among various other regulations. So yes, there is a voucher system in Sweden, but it does come with very stringent regulations and very stringent oversight, which is not something that I would expect to happen in a North American context. In any case, what the point here is to illustrate that I'm sure you guys have probably heard school vouchers proposed as part of a Republican policy platform in regards to education. I'm sure you've heard cuts to entitlement being proposed. And these are things which are founded in the Chicago School of Economics. And here's the thing, guys like Ben Shapiro, guys who represent this academic wing of conservatism, they love Friedman. They love him to pieces. And again, Ben Shapiro is on my roster of right-wing people that I watch frequently to make sure I understand what right-wing people are thinking about and talking about and all that crap. And one of the things, if you listen to him, you'll hear him frequently talk about the need for social security reform. You'll basically hear him talk. In fact, I've heard him get frustrated actively over the fact that Republicans won't tackle social security reform because they're basically afraid that if they want to even begin to tackle social security reform, they're going to have to tackle the fact that you have a gigantic and bloated military budget. So why are you going to be coming after old people's pensions for this giant, ridiculous, oversized military budget? Why aren't you going after that first? And then if you can't find enough money out of that, then maybe we'll talk about the pensions. Ben hates that shit. No tolerance for that. He basically believes that you should be making the arguments for both. Simultaneously, he believes that you should be making the argument for cutting social security as well as increasing the military budget at the same time. So right now, Ben Shapiro is DeSantis's number one cheerleader. For example, he invited him on a show right after his Twitter spaces failure to launch gave him a nice tongue bath, and then let him go off on his various policy proposals. So it would not surprise me if Ben Shapiro is heavily involved in advising this campaign in some fashion. 
And if he is, there's no question that this kind of Chicago School of Economics type of thinking is going to start to permeate its way into DeSantis's campaign. And this brings us right back to Trump because the unfortunate thing for oh, Benny Boy and these academic conservatives is that this type of like insular economic conservative thinking and macroeconomic view of the world is extremely unpopular. It's not just extremely unpopular among the regular rank and file people, even among the Republican voters and Republican base. This type of neoliberal economics is not very popular. And this is something that Donald Trump understands, or at least seems to understand, exceedingly well. I think it's definitely fair to say that there is no human being on the planet who has a better tap of the Republican base's pulse than Donald Trump. And in regards to this issue, particularly about Social Security, he understands one thing about the Republican base, which I am quite frankly flabbergasted that Ron DeSantis does not seem to understand. You want to talk about one of the most reliable cohorts of Republican support out there? Well, look no further than low-income seniors and low-income pensioners, and of course, middle-income pensioners too. These seniors make up a huge, huge proportion of the Republican base. And not only that, of course, they are very motivated to get out and vote for their candidate of choice, whether it's a primary or general election. And a lot of these seniors are on incredibly fixed incomes where their pension, their social security, all these other entitlements that they've built up their entire life, this might be their only income. This might be it. So if you want to get one of the most stringent and enthusiastic cohorts of Republican support to start supporting Democrats, the one thing you might want to do is start touching their social security and pensions and that sort of thing. And Donald Trump understands this. He very clearly understands this. And again, it's, it's bizarre that DeSantis does not, given how many lower income pensioners there are in Florida, which support him. But then again, I, I do think he is detached from the ground of his base. It's pretty clear that he's developed a pretty uh, terminally online campaign, so far at least. And he's actually not as in tune with the Republican base as he thought he was. But this is why Donald Trump is leaning so heavily into being pro-social security and using that as a wedge against DeSantis because he knows it's going to get those low-income and middle-income pensioners to come and vote for him in both the primary and general election. So you might be wondering why these lower-income seniors don't vote for Democrats. Well, they certainly do in a higher proportion than middle or upper-income seniors. But my hypothesis would be is that they're not in lockstep with the Democratic Party in terms of social issues. They worry in terms of social issues. But one of the things that could definitely get them to put those reservations aside would be meddling with their pensions. But one of the things that's very interesting to me as a political observer watching the evolution of Donald Trump as a figure over this past goddamn, it's been almost a decade now, is how he has adopted an air of flexibility which allows him to take on a wide variety of policy positions and also allows him to attack his opponents on basically whatever angle he thinks will work it's funny he's actually arguing and debating more like we talk about like the political 
perspective is all the elements. Like I talked about how airbenders debate, it's reminding me how like an airbender would debate being very flexible and willing to attack their opponent based upon um, their own terms rather than their, rather than their internal ideological terms, if that makes any sense. Like when it comes to debating conservatives, one of the big things that I will always go for is hammering them on freedom because a lot of them don't actually believe in freedom as much as they say they do. And it's extremely easy to reveal this over time. But Trump is flexible enough to attack a guy like DeSantis from the left because over his however long he's been in the political sphere, he's built up enough street cred, quote unquote, with the Republican base to be able to hit from the left and not lose credibility with them. His base will still be with him even if he adopts and adopts a few more left-wing, quote-unquote. And of course, this is left-wing in a, in a Republican context, right? Not in a wide political context. So he's built up enough credibility with his base that allows him to attack from the left and not actually lose that credibility among the people who support him. It's actually a pretty strong position for him to be in because DeSantis actually has to build up that credibility with the Republican base on a national scale, right? Obviously, he's got Florida locked down, but Florida is only one state. So one of his tacks to build that national credibility is position himself as a more right-wing figure than even Donald Trump. Fuck, man, I almost called him Rob. I just about called him Rob. So Ron DeSantis is in the position where he has to build up this credibility nationally. Trump already has that credibility. And again, this gives him the flexibility to actually track left if he thinks that it's going to be politically favorable for him to actually do that and not lose support or credibility among his base. And here's the thing. Not only is this going to leave... DeSantis in a poor position if it actually does work because he's going to look extreme going into a general election. I don't think it's going to work in the first place because he, during the debate, can come out and talk about all these like wonkish policy ideas about how Trump is moving to the left economically or socially or what, whatever, whatever he wants to say. He's gonna, he can try and make these arguments. And then all that Donald Trump is going to do is like, I'm going to take political advice from you. Meatball Ran. And then everyone will laugh and he won't actually answer the question and things will just move on. And ultimately, though, for DeSantis, he won't be able to land those kind of attacks because Trump will be able to, I think at least, pretty easily deflect them. But I do think Trump actually is representing a new breed of right-wing politician and right-wing political philosophy which I think should be concerning to the left, and we should be paying attention to it, which is a strain of conservative thinking and conservative policy making, which is still conservative, but is more flexible when it comes to maybe social policy, or even when it comes to social programs like Social Security, Medicare, other entitlements that exist in the United States. I think that there is going to be a strong contingent of the Republican Party that is going to emerge and be much more flexible on those kind of issues. And the reason for that being is that it's a populist type of thinking. And they understand that those, that those programs are popular 
And by standing by them, they're going to get a lot more political power and political support than by trying to abandon them or even reform them. And in my worst case scenario, I see them using this kind of flexibility as almost a wedge issue to define the population from the left. And what's even scarier is if they decide to, for example, deem social benefits worthy to only certain select groups within society based on perhaps immutable characteristics, well, as the rest of the population is left out on the cold. So let me try and craft a scenario to maybe better explain what I mean here. Let's say we have a right-leaning party who comes in and say they develop a social policy package for only middle-income families or something like that, for a very specific type of people who are more likely to be, let's say, Caucasian, because that would be their preference. They wouldn't directly say it like they would maybe 50 years ago, but they try and veil it under some sort of other factor. So anyway, they come up with this program, which only goes to a select but sizable chunk of the population. And then maybe you have a left-wing policy that says, we're going to give these programs out to everybody. But what will happen is that those kind of middle-income families or whatever, the people who are going to get the entitlements from the Republican side might decide, I'm just going to go with the Republicans because they say I'm going to get this. And I'm not so sure that we're going to be able to give it out to everybody type of thing. And therefore, you develop a wedge in between these two groups of people. And not only that, you've used almost left-wing thinking against itself. I don't know how realistic this scenario is. Like I said, this is the worst-case type of scenario that I think about. But yeah, in the meantime, though, I do think it's very likely that Ron DeSantis will be crushed by Trump in this primary. And it's, it's going to be hard for me not to enjoy watching it happen. Because the one thing about Trump, and this is probably the greatest strength the guy has, is that he's actually funny for the most part. He's got that celebrity charisma. He's able to poke jokes at himself and at other people. He's got that kind of the X factor, whatever you want to call it, in a way that no politician, at least in my lifetime, I think has ever had. The only other politician I can think of that may have had this kind of charisma like Donald Trump, but in a bit of a different way. He was a genuinely funny man, but his humor was much more sarcastic and dry. And that is Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, was actually an incredibly funny man. You go back and you watch some of his interviews, you read some of his comments. Holy shit, that guy was whip smart. And it's clear there was a reason why it was called Trudeau mania back in the day and why he you know, inspired a lot of people back in the day because yeah, he had that celebrity X factor, really funny guy able to bring people in and energize them. And it's becoming pretty clear that Ron DeSantis just doesn't have that. And because he doesn't have that, it looks like Donald Trump is going to clean the floor with him. I still do think that come head to head, Biden will probably win in a rematch. The one thing that Biden does have in comparison to like a person like Hillary Clinton, is that, well, Biden is pretty easy to dislike. Biden is actually pretty hard to loathe in comparison to Hillary Clinton, who is a lot easier to have that really negative visceral reaction. I think back to the campaign trail when Joe Biden was running and someone in the crowd challenged him. And he's like, shut up, fat. I'm going to challenge you to a push-up contest. 
and you're like, what the hell is happening right now? What am I watching? And my point here is, is that it's pretty tough to hate somebody who responds in such a goofy manner like that, such like a random manner like that. Whereas if the same thing happened to Hillary Clinton, she would probably just stare at you with her dead eyes and secretly planning a way to murder your entire family. Who knows? So I think that's going to be the real challenge for Donald Trump. And it was a similar challenge in 2020 is to get people to really hate Joe Biden because lots of people already hate Donald Trump, but a lot of people just dislike Joe Biden, right? I'm one of those people who doesn't like Joe Biden. I actively dislike him. I don't have a lot of hate and detest in my heart for the guy. And the one thing I do think that Trump supporters just don't understand is how toxic his political brand is to large sections of the American population. And the thing about that toxicity is that it motivates people to actually vote against him. And that is not something you want to be in because I think a lot of people voted against Hillary Clinton in the 2016 elections. And a lot of people voted against Donald Trump in the 2020 elections. And come 2024, the issue for Trump is going to be to try and get people to vote against Joe Biden in that election. And I do think it's going to be harder than you actually realize. Because Joe Biden is just kind of like, like mush. So you just can't build him up avatar of hate. You try and build him up and he just collapses into mush again. Anyway, that's it for that's my analysis of how things are going in the Republican primary. The main thing I want to bring your guys' attention to is this evolving economic fault line in the Republican Party. It's definitely something I'm going to be paying attention to moving forward. And I really am interested to see what Ron DeSantis' strategy, if any, is going to be to counteract Donald Trump's continued attack on his record on Social Security. So with that, I am going to move into a feel-good story. First time we've had one in a while, and then we'll obviously end the show. So let's go into our feel-good story of the episode. Today we have this story from Science Alert. Scientists find a way to harvest clean energy from nothing but air. So let's delve into the details here. Engineers have demonstrated something marvelous. Almost any material can be used to create a device that continuously harvests energy from human air. It's not a development that's ready for practical application, still theoretical, but it does, its creators say, transcend some of the limitations of other harvesters. All the material needs is to be pocketed with nanopores less than 100 nanometers in diameter. That's around a thousandth of the width of a human hair. So it's easier said than done, but far simpler than expected. The material can harvest electricity generated by microscopic water droplets in humid air, according to the team led by engineer Zalming Liu of the University of Massachusetts Armhest. They have called their discovery the generic air gen effect. The air contains an enormous amount of electricity, says engineer Pianyo of UMass Amherst. Think of a cloud, which is nothing more than a mass of water droplets. Each of those droplets contains a charge. But when the conditions are right, the cloud can produce a lightning bolt. But we don't know how to reliably capture electricity from lightning. But what we've done is create a human build on a small-scale cloud that produces electricity for us to predictably and continuously use so that we can harvest it. And so just pause here. What he's saying, super fascinating, is that they are trying to recreate 
lightning clouds process, you know, or light, they're, they're trying to recreate the process of creating lightning in a cloud. And that to me is just so interesting. Like, how did we not really, that that's another thing that's so obvious. How do we not think about that as a means of generating electricity? So obviously they're talking about using sort of the, the friction and the static electricity built up by all these water molecules rubbing against each other. And then that eventually create a lightning bolt, which would discharge down into, I'm assuming this tank, and then again, be harvested for our own electricity. Let's move on. If AirGen sounds familiar, then it's because the team previously developed an air energy harvester. However, their earlier device relied upon protein nanowires grown by bacterium. And as it turns out, the bacterium is necessary. We realized after making the Geobacter discovery that the ability to generate electricity from air, what we call the AirGen effect, turns out to be generic. Literally any kind of material can harvest electricity from the air so long as it has a certain property. So again, really fascinating here saying that they had their first iteration of this concept actually used sort of a bacteria grown in the device, but turns out they didn't actually need that because any type of device, well, long as it has these small nanometer holes in it can actually generate electricity. The properties of the nanometers and their size is, is predicated on the free mean path of water molecules in the human air. That's the distance a water molecule can travel in the air before it collides with another water molecule. The generic AirGen device is made from a thin film of material such as cellulose, skin protein, or graphic oxide. Water materials can easily enter the nanopores and travel from the top of the film to the bottom, but they run into the other sides of the pore as they travel. These transfer charge to the material, producing a buildup. Because the more water molecules run along the top of the film, the charge imbalance occurs between the two sides. This produces a similar effect to what we see in lightning-producing clouds. Rising air creates more cohesion between the water droplets at the top of the cloud, resulting in an excess of positive charge in the higher clouds, and an excess of negative charge in the lower ones. In this case, the charge could potentially be redirected to power small devices stored in a battery of some kind. At the moment, it's still in its early stages. The cellulose film the team tested has a spontaneous voltage output of 260 millivolts in the ambient environment, whereas a mobile phone requires a voltage output of 5 volts, but the thinness of the film means that it could be stacked on a scale that the AirGen devices more practically applicable. And the fact that it can be made out of different materials means that devices could be adopted from the environment where they are to be used. The researchers say, the idea is simple, but it's never been discovered before. It opens up all kinds of possibilities, Yao says. You could imagine harvesters made of one kind of material for rainforest environments and others for more arid regions. The next step would be to test these devices in different environments also work on scaling them up. But the generic air gen effect is real and the possibilities that it represents are hopeful. This is very exciting, Lou says. We're opening up the door wide for harvesting clean electricity from thin air. And again, wow, yeah, when I read that, I was like, God damn, that's so fascinating. Sometimes when I try and find these stories for you guys and I read these stories and it's just, wow. It feels like the future is here now these, all these ideas that we're talking about, they're still not being developed to a scale where they're practically applicable to human society as a whole. 
I think that is the real sticking point here is to try and take these ideas and replicate them in a way where they are actually scalable for the billions of people that now live on the planet. Because while this is a very, very cool device and a very, very cool concept, they say it only generates like, what was it? 600, 260 millivolts of electricity. So basically not even close to the amount needed to charge a cell phone. So there's obviously a lot of work to be done, but I can't believe that no one had really thought about this idea before or started working on this idea before, which is essentially trying to recreate the conditions of lightning and use that to harvest electricity from man-made lightning clouds and lightning bolts. Just really interesting stuff, in my opinion. So I hope that that actually did leave you on a, a positive note, a good feel-good story. But with that, we are going to sign off the final episode of Chatter in the Skull. I'll see you guys next week, and we'll have a different logo. And other than that, though, <laughs> nothing will really change about the show. So with that, we're going to wrap it up for now. I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been DeComrade signing off for now. Until next time, you guys take care.